Welcome everyone to the QI Chatroom podcast. Today our focus is on emergency preparedness and wildfire season and we're very lucky to be joined by three very much experts in this field in Marin, Sonoma counties uh, in the North Bay writ large. So I'm going to introduce our three guests today and then we're going to dive right into questions and we'll have time for any of our live audience to ask questions at the end as well. Uh, and we'll make sure to finish before 10 a.m. Joining us today, we have Tom Welch, who currently serves as Deputy Fire Chief for Operations and Training for the Southern Marin Fire District and the City of Mill Valley. Uh, Tom brings 30 years of public safety experience, the last 21 of which has been with the City of Mill Valley's Fire Department. Tom has served at various ranks, including Battalion Chief, Fire Marshal, Fire Captain, and Engineer Paramedic and is an active participant on many teams and committees throughout Marin County, including Marin County Urban Search and Rescue Team and the North Bay Incident Management Team. He's an active member of the Marin County Fire Prevention Officers Association and the Marin County Fire Chiefs Association. His education includes the National Fire Academy's Executive Fire Officer Program, Master's Degree in Fire Service Administration, as well as the California State Chief Officer Certification. Tom, welcome. And with us as well is Melinda Rivera. Melinda currently serves as PG&E's representative for local affairs for Sonoma and Lake Counties. Melinda grew up in Sonoma County, and most of her career has been working for hospital systems and community health centers. Melinda actually is a former RCHC employee, so we're very happy to have her back at RCHC for this podcast. She has served as an elected member of the Middleton Rancheria Tribal Council and is currently working in local government relations, as mentioned, for PG&E. Also, last but certainly not least, we're joined by Rocio Rodriguez, who is Sonoma County's co-ed director, working with over 40 nonprofit, faith-based organizations, private sector businesses, and government agencies. She facilitates communication, collaboration, cooperation, and coordination during disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. Thank you to each of you for joining us. So diving right into our questions, I'm going to start with Tom with a overarching question, but feel free to uh, dive right in if you have something to add. Tom, you know, looking at this year's uh, drought scenario, what are you seeing in terms of fire season? What can we be prepared for in the coming weeks? Thanks for that question, Max, and thanks for hosting this important conversation, and thanks to the Redwood Community Health Coalition for doing the same. We have been uh, looking at the drought conditions for the last two years. In fact, last fire season was the worst on record for California's history. Uh, over 10,000 homes have been lost for the last you know, four years, averaging, and about 30-plus lives have been lost, and it's only getting worse, and so um, due to climate change, uh, lack of rain, La Nina type effects down in the equator. We've seen a drying of California and it's come on fairly strong in the last 10 to 12 months or so with the light winter. What, uh, what occurs when you have drought conditions is that you have drought stricken plants, vegetation and trees that succumb to disease as a week, as a result of that weakening and become uh, increase that increases the fuel that is available for fire. And so uh, this year we've seen an increase in starts, but not an increase in acreage as compared to last year, but we're just getting started. We're identifying fuel conditions currently that we would see typically in late August, and now we're in July. 
And so almost two months ahead of it. Also, fire season has just gotten longer as a result of these drying conditions. And so fire season now goes off into November. And even in December, we've been down in Southern California fighting large conflagration type fires. So that's basically what we're seeing is a, a, a drying climate and increased fuel vegetation available for burning, which leads to more violent type fires. So given this uh, very dire situation, what are fire districts and cities doing to prepare? It's a great question. One of the things that we're doing is, uh, one, we provide a ton of information. So we believe that an informed public is a more responsive and better equipped public to react to a wildland fire. And so just educating the community and becoming an adaptive community is an important first step. We have to learn to live with fire. Fire has been across the California landscape uh, for eons and uh, will continue into the future. And so we have to adapt to that. It's a very important first step, so education. The second step is that we have built our homes up into the wildland urban interface. And in doing so, we have brought homes to increased risk. And fire, like specifically in Marin, probably in Sonoma County, uh, would typically touch the landscape with a return interval of about 8 to 18 years, somewhere in that span, and would clean the understory of the forest. Uh, That's not happening these days because we have a suppression uh, approach to everything due to property and lives being at risk. And so we need to um, conduct vegetation management and remove those tons per acre that are naturally removed. And so we do that through smart, very concise and direct vegetation management in and around people's homes. We offer programs like chipping uh, and fuel reduction opportunities. We're clearing along our exit routes and roadways so that evacuations can be happen efficiently. And then we're also creating very smart, shaded-type fuel breaks that are ecologically sound to give firefighters certain strategic advantages in different areas. So specifically in our community, we maintain ridgetop fuel breaks that are during non-wartime, non-fire season, are fantastic facilities for our community to use and get outside and get some air and sun, sun, but they're also strategic facilities for us to use during fire season. So those are some of the approaches that local governments do. Great. Well, thank you for all of your preparedness efforts. I want to bring Rocio into the conversation. First, Rocio, for, for our listeners who might not be aware of COADS and BOADS, if you could talk a little bit about what a COAD is and what the role of a COAD is both before a disaster and also immediately following. And um, just picking up off of what Tom was saying, you know, what what are you seeing in terms of fire season this year and, and how are the organizations that you work with preparing? Sure. So there is a national VOAD, Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, and they're really, I guess, parent organization for all the COADs and VOADs and uh, different iterations of those. It differs slightly between a COAD and VOAD, but really the idea is a coalition, nonprofits, different organizations, community-based organizations, government partners, faith-based organizations that work together to prepare, respond to, and recover from disasters. What we have in the Bay Area, we do have a NorCal VOAD, uh, which brings together all the COADs and VOADs. And what we see here, well, I think every county does have a COAD or VOAD. So uh, San Francisco has an SF card, which is an iteration of it. Uh, Napa and 
Napa County has a co-ad, Marin has a VOAD, and Sonoma County has a co-ad. So there's quite, there's quite a few surrounding that also will support each other in preparedness and also in response and recovery. There, we also have a type of mutual aid that is really common in government response, so requesting services or resources from surrounding counties. So we will do that, but with different kinds of resources, not with Uh, fire engines, or I can't think of all the other kinds of equipment that Tom is probably already listing in his head, but water, blankets, spiritual and emotional, uh, compassionate listeners or carers, religious leaders who can come and provide that emotional support in uh, a shelter setting, connecting people to resources that they might need. So material goods like clothing, hygiene kits, materials for their pets, for their animals. So that's the vital part of this type of collaboration is that then we can work with our government partners to ensure that those resources can go to shelters or temporary evacuation points, which are, have really risen out from COVID-19. Sonoma County is really leaning into that model to direct people into shelters. And then also how resources can be uh, taken and redistributed during uh, during recovery. So in local assistance centers or during points of distribution when people are able to go back to their properties. So also providing a warm uh, helping hand uh, referrals to nonprofits and other resources within the county. And I think a lot of what Tom is the same thing that we've been hearing. So preparing for a fire season, that's going to be very active. I think the the most eye-opening thing that I've heard is that we are two months, I believe it is, two months ahead of when the regular fire season usually starts and the fuel load is higher. So we're really uh, talking to people about their individual preparedness in their homes, in their businesses, with roommates, with families, uh, and organizations are also preparing themselves. We have a cohort of 17 organizations through our Sonoma County COAD who are currently writing their own continuity of operation plans and emergency operation plans so that they are also have that resiliency. So they are prepared that they can keep delivering their ongoing services and also redirect resources as needed to help in shelters and in general response wherever we can. Great. Thank you, Rocio. And looking ahead to this fire season, what are the organizations involved with COAD preparing for? What are some of the steps that uh, co-ed organizations take in the lead up to fire season? Yeah, so there's the coops and the EOPs for those 17. There are others who have reached out also interested, so we can just provide them with some templates that they can use. Other things that they're doing are also helping their clients. A lot of these nonprofits uh, serve a particular population of people who speak different languages who might not be accessing the information in their language. So translating, interpreting, speaking to them one-on-one about how to have a go bag, how to have a stay box, what they can do to prepare with their families and with their pets. So really helping to increase that community resiliency at their organizational level and also the community level. Great. Turning our attention to another scenario, in the last couple of years, um, we've gotten used to an event called a PSPS, a public safety power shutoff. And I want to bring Melinda in to talk a little bit about PSPS events in prior years and how this year might look a little bit different and, and what PG&E consumers can expect, what our energy users can expect in California. Melinda? Hi, good morning, Max. 
yes. So uh, we do have a, a tool that the utility companies use here in the state of California that they have been using the last few years, which is called Public Safety Power Shutoff, PSPS for short, although that acronym could be used in many ways. So we do try to make sure that we're talking about a public safety power shutoff. And, and as um, Tom mentioned earlier, right, as uh, our experience with wildfire changes every year, as the magnitude of these fires change, the utility companies across California, including PG&E, are really working to try to reduce the possibility and the potential of utility-caused fires. So public safety power shutoffs are a tool that the utility companies use when specific conditions are present. So um, usually that's during times of um, high winds. So if there's uh, sustained winds of 20 miles per hour or higher or gusts of more than miles per, per hour Fire. When there's low humidity in the vegetation, I, I think that Tom mentioned earlier this year, uh, we're seeing humidity levels that normally we would see much later in the fall and seeing this a few weeks ago. Also, if there's a red flag warning as declared by the National Weather Service, uh, this is also a factor in whether or not a public safety power shutoff is called. And then we're also using kind of on-the-ground observations from crews in real time uh, about the situation on the ground, about whether or not it would be most prudent to engage in a public safety power shutoff event. So, so certain portions of the electric grid will get turned off if these conditions are met and if our meteorology team and our public safety team determines that um, it's most prudent to to de-energize a portion of the grid to mitigate the risks and potential of starting uh, an ignition. PSPS events really um, began here in Northern California with Pacific Gas and Electric in 2018. They continued for the last couple of years, and people like to ask me, you're going to be like, what's PG&E thinking about for how, how many PSPS events, how many days will they last? And it's really difficult to say, right? We really hope that we will not see high fire threat conditions come our way. But so far, what we're seeing, the indicators, the types of um, conditions we're seeing on the ground are not leading us to be too hopeful that we will be able to avoid public safety power shutoffs this year. So one more criteria that is that has been uh, included for this year for public safety power shutoff is something called tree overstrike. So looking at those trees, density of trees and trees that are tall enough where if they were to fall down, they could hit a power line, an energized line. So that is one more factor that the comp- that Pacific Gas and Electric is considering for this year. Great. And in terms of communication Thanks. and notification, how, how, do, how do you get the word out to your customers? I, I wasn't sure if Tom had a question about the... Oh, I just, I just wanted to give a follow-up on all the, P, the work that pg and done. They've been an excellent partner in raising our game. And what they've done is, and I'm sure she'll talk about it, Melinda will, uh, is they put weather stations all over the place that give us a better understanding of the microclimates that we have throughout our community give us a better understanding of how fires will burn in certain areas with that intelligence. The other intelligence that they have provided us is the the fire cameras that we have access to. A lot of them have been provided by PG&E and that whole network. It's the first place I go when we have a report of smoke in our area uh, to gather immediate intelligence about the fire. And 
allow for us to bolster our response. It, it's just been tremendous. So I just wanted to call that out as a body of work that PG&E has done. Well, thank you. And yes, there are any member of community can actually go and look at um, the camera images in real time. I believe you go to mywildfirealerts.org and you can see kind of a map of the state of California and you can select the particular region in the state that you're interested in. And it will zoom in like if you're interested in Mervyn County or Napa County and it'll zoom in and you can actually click on um, whichever camera you'd like to view. Now, other people control, um, I believe it's CAL FIRE and other first responder agencies control the direction that the uh, civilians cannot move the camera around if you want to look at this or that, but you can actually see right now in real time what the cameras are looking at in any part of the state of California. So you can even actually go see Unfortunately, where we do have um, fires occurring right now, you can probably see some of them on those cameras in real time. So you'd ask me about notifications. So once uh, the meteorology team and the public safety power shutoff team at the utility company have determined that it is likely there will be a public safety power shutoff event, PG&E let customers know as soon as possible. So if there is enough of an advance notice and Last year, we were, for the most part, able to do this for the public safety power shutoff events in my two counties. But there should be, when when PG&E enters kind of a, a watch phase, so they'll send out a notification two days before a public safety power shutoff is anticipated to impact a community. So customers for whom PG&E has their contact information on file, the customers will get either an email or a text or an automated phone call. You know, it it's, appears that there will be a power shutoff in your community that will start on July 12th. I don't even like saying dates, but st start say it starts on 1st, and um, more information will be coming to you soon. So there will also be a message that comes the day before it's anticipated, right before the power will be de-energized on the day of the public safety power shutoff event. And then customers receive notifications once a day for the duration of the public safety power shutoff. So if it lasts two days, they'll get a message every day. And then finally, once power has been restored, customers will receive one more notification that their power has been restored, that their power has been restored. Now, the critical piece of this is that um, PG&E needs to have some way of contacting customers. So we really encourage everyone to visit pge.com forward slash my wildfire alerts. So we can only notify customers via text or if we have a cell phone number or via email, if we have an email address. So we really encourage everybody to keep their information updated. If they've changed their phone number, changed their landline or their home phone number to please go and take the time right now before we start having PSPS events that that information is updated. We really want to make sure people get notified in a timely manner, but we're only able to do that if we have contact information on file. For those community members who are not an account holder for PG&E, so if you rent a room from somebody else, or let's say even if, if you'd like to know if there will be a PSPS event that impacts uh, where you work, your place of employment, or your child's daycare, or your children's school, or loved one, or your 
a family member, uh, you can sign up to receive what, what are called address alerts. So PG&E has a website for address alerts. If you're not the account holder for that address, you can still sign up to receive PSPS alerts for that address. Great. Thank you, Melinda. And for folks who, who may, their primary language might not be English, are there options uh, to receive alerts in other languages? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Max, for asking that. So for both the mywildfirealerts.com and for address alerts, for the website for to enroll for the address alerts, e.com forward slash address alerts. And so those, um, there are language options. We have 16 languages that where people can re- receive their uh, automated phone calls or the texts or the emails because um, it's a pretty standard message every time we have a public safety power shutoff event. So uh, customers can choose which of those 16 languages that we currently have available in which they'd like to receive their notifications. Thank you for asking that. Great. Thank you. Turning back to, to Tom, since most of our listeners are connected to community health centers, what advice or recommendations do you have for health centers uh, to prepare for wildfire season and PSPS events? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. So health centers, you know, that provide leadership and, and help to the community uh, for maybe some underserved populations or folks in needs need to prepare a little bit sooner. So they need to build in time uh, to be able to help their folks and their folks need to build in time relative to that their evacuation planning and what uh, what they need to do to prepare. So, for instance, uh, we work with a lot of folks who have a little hitch in the giddy-up, don't go as fast as they used to. And for those folks, they need to have more planning done in advance and build in more time. Um, we work hard to make sure that we provide enough ample time and actionable information for people to take protective action. But some of those folks need a little more. So there's, for instance, If you haven't thought about a grab-and-go bag for an evacuation from a wildfire and you're just thinking it now after we've notified you that it's time to evacuate, you're behind the the ball. You're you're way behind. And so we encourage folks to think of those things long before they ever occur. Have that plan so they can take action within minutes and seconds and not hours. And so uh, other actions that community health organizations can do is just providing information and leadership to their constituency so that they can be action oriented and ready to go uh, in the blink of a, the blink of an eye. As we've talked about too, the conditions are ripe for fast moving wildland fires. Our weather is becoming more aggressive and so pushing those fires. And so quick, quick action is needed to just keep everyone safe, which is what our goal is. Since you brought up uh, grabbing go bags, for our listeners who might not be aware of that concept, what typically would you put in a grabbing go bag and, and what's the, the rationale for having one? What sort of scenario would, would you have to use one for? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great one. I have a little anecdote to help uh, bring what was probably humorous now, but not humorous at the time, is um, during the 2017 fire, so I was active in evacuation within my neighborhood. And at about three in the morning or so, I came across a husband and wife, uh, both in their underwear, out in the middle of the road. And one, uh, the wife was in a wheelchair, and the husband was just trying to figure out what, what to do with fire all around them. And so I put them in my vehicle, and they had nothing, essentially, they had a wheelchair and their skivvies. And I uh, drove them out of the fire area, and I said, you know, I'm not sure where I'm going to take you right now. I'm going to take you to the mall parking lot. And they said, we're in our underwear. You can't drop us off in the mall parking lot. And I said, watch me. 
And that's exactly what I did. And there were some other folks there to help take care of them. And so it, one of the first things you should put in your grab and go bag is maybe a, a change of clothes, uh, a cotton based uh, change of clothes. And then other items, uh, there's very, very good comprehensive lists on uh, a number of websites, Firesafe Marin, ReadyMarin.org. Uh, those are all great websites, but, you know, medications, a little bit of cash, phone, you know, uh, credit cards, things of that nature, some water, a handkerchief, um, if you're sensitive to the smoke, a hat, uh, hard, hard sold shoes, things of that nature, because you never know when you find yourself in your underwear in the middle of the street looking for help. So grab and go bags, I can't stress them enough. I don't know. I've been evacuated several times from my home in Sonoma County, and uh, my wife has it down to a T. She has grab and go bag. Uh, stuffed and ready to go, and she can be out of the house within uh, seconds. And she has plans that have been thought through because oftentimes I'm not there. I'm actively out managing a suppression. So those are some of the things, but that anecdote will stick with me forever because uh, if there was ever a reason to have a grab-and-go bag with a little bit extra clothes, that was it. Thanks for sharing that anecdote, Tom. So so who should a grab-and-go bag be for? Should it, should it be one per household, or should you have individual ones for, for each member of the household? I've heard you should have uh, a grab-and-go bag for each pet as well. Roughly how many should you have in a given, in a given house? Yeah, I mean, I think that a grab-and-go bag for each member is probably one of the best approaches, most comprehensive approach. But if we have one grab-and-go bag that supplies everyone, uh, that can be also good, but sometimes, you know, families are split up. And so the grab and go bags, you, know, you, you need to have one wherever you're at, uh, if you're at risk for a wildland fire. So uh, having uh, supplies for your pets is also very, very important. Us in the municipals uh, jurisdictions, we do sheltering operations and we do have some pet care availability, but it's very limited. And so for you to be able to care for yourself and your pet for those first 72 to 96 hours, it's essential until we get our feet under us, kind of understand the uh, size and scope of the incident, and then uh, work with our community partners, some on this call to drive care and shelter for for our community. Great. Rocio, I just want to invite you into the conversation. If you have anything to add on grabbing go bags or or other ways people can, can get prepared ahead of time. Sure. So one resource that I really want to encourage people to look into is uh, Listos California, and that is what a lot of nonprofits have been using uh, to train themselves and then then kind of like a train-the-trainer model. Other people who can also talk about how to put together a go bag and a stay box as well. Um, I actually have, the listeners can't see this, but I do have a disaster ready guide. And it's a really great, uh, really full of pictures, really easy to just fill out with information. But it's great to also include in your go bag as well. And you can write down your emergency contacts, what are additional things that you need as you're literally running out of your house, what are things to have inside of a bag, um, and things that are nice to have, but may not be something that you can purchase at the moment or like don't have the financial means to purchase one dialogue that's been going around with go bags is people are concerned that they need to, they need to buy these professional, really nice, expensive bags or boxes. But a lot of the materials you can just put together my own go bag, I just put together over the course of a few months and just odds and ends of things that I am basing off of this template from Listos and families that aren't able to afford that and aren't able to purchase like a $30 external battery or 
have like $100 just in their bag can build that up over time or can go to the dollar store and just purchase some of the essentials there. And something else to remember, too, is that a lot of the shelters and a lot of spaces, community centers and communities will have at least some of the other basic essentials like water, food. I know Tom just actually just mentioned like, oh, make sure you have all this stuff for 96 hours. It is good to have a supply for those first few days if there is an earthquake. We talk a lot about fires, but there's also the earthquake risk and other things that we might not be thinking about that might require people to stay in their house and can be safer to stay in than leaving. So also just building up that box. And then once you have it set up or your bag, just leave it alone. Don't touch it, but check it. I think every six months, I think was a recommendation. Check your batteries, check maybe your needs have changed. You need to put in more stuff or take out some things, have that um, extra set of clothes. You adopt a pet. Now you need to think about your pet. And there's a lot of different organizations as well that can also help support with that and also give supplies to as needed. Great. Thank you. And since, since as, as mentioned, most of our listeners do work with community health centers and patients, uh, what recommendations do you have for uh, people who, who may have a disability or older adults or people who might have transportation difficulties? What, what recommendations do you have for them for preparing for emergency scenarios? Uh, Rosia? I feel like Tom might also have some ideas. I'd actually like for Tom to go if you're okay. we'll, comfortable. We'll go to Tom. First. And then I can add on. I'd love to. Yeah, just looking at uh, the people that we serve, especially uh, older adults uh, or people who might have transportation challenges who may live in a more rural area, as well as people with disabilities. What, what recommendations do you have for those populations to prepare for a disaster scenario? The first thing is they need to be um, connected in, looped in, and communicated to. pg e offers a communication uh, pathway. We offer communication pathways that people can opt into, but then we also have non-opt-in programs where we can push information out as well in an emergent situation. And so by being looped in, if you live in a rural area, uh, maybe a high fire danger or high fire prone area, your first um, notification is through the red flag warnings. If PGE is indicating that they're going to do a PSPS in your area, that's another great warning. And so for those folks, you know, um, we talk about having that network within their neighborhood to make sure that they're all looking after each other. So neighbors helping neighbors is a very important part of that. So being connected in with the neighborhood so that folks can help each other out during that situation. I've always said that firefighters will save a lot of lives over their careers and they will protect a lot of property. However, nobody will save more lives than neighbors who are interconnected in the neighborhood willing to help each other. Uh, so that's the first thing is get being in those communication circuits. And I'm sure your coalition is one of those that can provide information, timely information to people. Um, if they're slow and um, they, they're just not as quick as they once were, that first warning, that red flag warning might be an opportunity for them to seek shelter elsewhere. Uh, go visit a friend or uh, a relative in out of the area uh, might be the first good step for them to take or at least consider. Um, not all red flags are created equal, but some are hyped up a bit more due to the risks in certain areas. So that's that's a first good step. Uh, that, that communication piece. I already talked about neighbors helping neighbors. I'm a, a huge believer in that. I think that we have to look after each other. We don't necessarily have to love each other, but we do have to look after each other. And so having neighborhood plans, forming neighborhood response groups or resource groups is a very important part of uh, everybody getting out alive. 
in my particular area, I only put 21 firefighters on. There's, you know, 15 or so cops on a day. And so that's not enough resources to handle um, the lives of 42,000 folks. So it's very important that we interconnect the neighborhoods. So those are, those are kind of two flavors there for you. Great. Rocio, do you want to uh, add on? Sure. Uh, just a few things. That's something else. One of the things that Tom has mentioned, leaving earlier than what you might think is just best. So you're not rushing out at the last minute and stuck in traffic, for example, or just a little slower getting into the car, the van, or whatever sort of transportation. Some other things have been that if you are able to get extra medication put in place in that go bag or in that stay box, uh, consider just extras of everything, eyeglasses, uh, hearing aid batteries, um, things that might just take a little bit longer to, to get access to. There's a whole system and there's a whole activation plan for a lot of pharmacies. But I think from what I've seen, I'm talking to a whole lot of medical folks. I feel like they might know more than me. It could just take a few days or it could be a complication because you're in a different county or you don't have uh, some sort of identification. Uh, another incentive for getting that um, go bag with photocopies of your information, of your uh, medical records, knowing how and where you can get your medical records if you can't access your clinic or your health center, or getting copies of those already uh, put aside ahead of time. And then speaking of batteries, and Melinda, you might be able to speak to this, but the medical baseline program for PG&E I'll, let, I'll leave that to you to, to be able to speak more about, but I also know that the Disability, oh, Disability Services and Legal Center, they also have a program where you can get uh, an extra, or you can, I believe, borrow a charger for batteries or, or an extra set of batteries if you, like the large ones for, I think, wheelchairs or for ventilators or for breathing apparatus, and they also have trainings as well for people with disabilities or who are elderly to learn more about how to prepare appropriately. And I just <laughs> received a reminder as well of keeping at least half a tank of gas in your car as well. Uh, and then having some cash set aside in case ETMs are not able to read your card if the, if the electricity is out. So great reminders. Thank you. Um, so those are a couple of things that I have heard specifically to uh, people with disabilities, and people who are older. Great. Melinda, do you want to add in anything from in terms of PSPS events, in terms of how folks can get connected in? Hi. Thanks, Max. So, yes, and thank you, Rocio, for mentioning the Medical Baseline Program through PG&E. It's a medical baseline program that is for those community members who have additional needs, right? It's not specific just to PSPS preparation, but really uh, for anyone. So the medical baseline program is an opportunity for uh, customers who have additional medical needs. For example, asthma, uh, customers who use respirators, who have multiple sclerosis, who have special heating or cooling needs due to medical conditions, community members who use CPAP machines, or those patients who have, it says here, hemodialysis machines. So patients who actually have the, um, the portable hemodialysis machine, not the one you go to at the satellite center, but the one you actually have at home. So for those conditions, uh, there is this medical baseline program. Um, it, it provides those community members with a, a discounted rate. Uh, due to their additional energy needs uh, because of their medical needs. And they also get some additional 
resources around um, public safety power shutoff notifications. Basically, Pacific Gas and Electric takes some extra steps to make sure that these customers get notified if there is going to be a public safety power shutoff event. So I have entered this into the chat, but I will also read it out loud. For anyone who's interested in learning more about the Medical Baseline Program, you can visit pge.com forward slash medical baseline. And um, for the community health centers who are participating in the call today or in the podcast, um, when you click on that website and go to that link, there is a PDF um, that you can open that's specific for medical practitioners. So um, when community members are applying for a medical baseline, and if you do have patients at the community health centers who you think might be eligible or who could benefit from this, I strongly encourage community health center staff to look into this for patients who they feel could benefit. So there is a PDF for practitioners. The practitioner, if the patient fills out the application online, the patient will get an email with a confirmation number. And then the patient will need to forward this confirmation number to their medical provider. And then the medical provider completes the certification form for the patient. If it's a paper application that the patient is bringing into the health center, then the medical practitioner uh, just completes the second page of the form and signs it. Um, and then, then the, the patient can mail it into PG&E. In addition to that, we also have a disability disaster access program. I think Rocio had mentioned this as well. Our local partner, California Foundation of Independent Local Partner Agency is Disability Services and Legal Center. The link to apply for this program, it's, it is separate from and in addition to Medical Baseline. So patients can be directed to disabilitydisasteraccess.org. And from there, there's a link to submit an application. And for this uh, program, this is for patients who have medical or independent living needs. And this enables them to access backup portable batteries, to have additional emergency preparedness kind of um, outreach and education. They get assistance with completing their medical baseline application if, if it, they have not already enrolled in it. They can get vouchers for transportation for PSPS events, vouchers for hotel stays and, and uh, food stipends. And that, again, is through disabilitydisasteraccess.org. So I, I hope that answers the question. So there is, going back to the medical baseline program, there is a portable battery program for those customers who are enrolled in medical baseline and who also live in high fire threat areas. So that's, those are the two criteria. So they are eligible to receive um, a portable battery. I will type that into the chat. That address for those customers or patients who are already enrolled in medical baseline and who live in a high fire threat area, the link for that is pgebatteryprogram.com. Thank you, Melinda, for all of that information and for those websites. So now we will turn to questions from our listeners, and we've been receiving a few in the chat, which I can read. You can direct your questions either to individual uh, guests or to uh, the entire panel. Either way works. And if you would like to speak, you can raise your Zoom hand and I can uh, call on you. 
Uh, so our first question comes from Pamela. Pamela asks uh, Rocio if we're planning to have a Sonoma County Emergency Preparedness Fair this year. And Pamela remembers fondly the successful fair held prior to the onset of COVID. So uh, wondering if there's plans in the works for that. Yes. So I will look up the exact details, but Cloverdale, the city of Cloverdale and some of the organizations in Cloverdale are going to host a countywide preparedness fair. I think it's called the the Safety Safety Expo. They're going to have, and I believe it's August 19th, but I will check while we're doing Q&A right now. But they'll have uh, games, they'll have giveaways. I know that they were putting together go bags as well for people, for attendees to to pick up and go. It's supposed to be family-centered, so everybody can come from anywhere in, in Sonoma County. They're really encouraging that. Uh, and they will also have trainings as well, uh, disaster prepared, individual disaster preparedness in English and Spanish. That will be hosted by Nuestra Comunidad, which is another organization I really encourage people to uh, to follow and and uh, get trainings from. So that there is one coming up, and I'll give you some more details. Great. And Ricardo asks, what emergency preparedness outreach events will be promoted in the community this fire season? I'll, I'll start with Tom, and then I'll go to Rocio and Melinda. Um, Tom? I mean, I could speak for our, our agency in the southern port of Marin County is we've done a number of things to do outreach and get our community prepared. For the last 15 years, we've been doing uh, community evacuation drills where we invite the community in specific neighbor, neighborhoods, high-risk neighborhoods, uh, to come down and meet with our community partners and um, have a conversation with us regarding what they can do to prepare. Uh, we anticipate continuing that. That's a, a trend that's taken off in Marin County. And now that we're emerging for COVID, we feel like we can assemble people safely. Um, so last year we did it all on Zoom. This year we're doing it in person. In fact, we just finished up uh, six drills. They were about an hour each in specific neighborhoods. So that's one one way. Our, our Fire Safe Marin, and I'm, sure, I'm certain the Fire Safe Councils and other counties are, are engaging the community all the time about uh, things that folks can do to reduce their risk, mitigate their risks, and prepare for the eventuality of a wildland fire. And they're putting on uh, podcasts and videos and seminars and Q&A sessions all the time. So I would encourage listeners to uh, tie in with your Fire Safe Council uh, regarding that, and those things are going on um, all the time. One of the unfortunate things is, and I think it's just human nature, is that uh, we fill sandbags in the rain, and we worry about evacuation when there's smoke in the air. And I really encourage us to, if we are anticipate flooding issues, to fill sandbags in the blue sky and be prepared for the rain, and uh, have the same uh, outlook when we are uh, dealing with wildland fires. And so it's just, I think it's just human nature, but I I really love to change that to where we have a more preparedness mindset. So those are um, two things that communities are doing and then uh, places for folks to get tied in uh, and get uh, up-to-date information um, timely. Great. And uh, Rocio, what outreach events are being planned in Sonoma County beyond the August fair in Cloverdale? Sure. So, the correction, it's August 7th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., and it's at the Cloverdale uh, Citrus Fair. And then some other preparedness events that are happening, um, there's a lot of collaboration happening with vaccine testing and, uh, and vaccination sites. There's a really big focus on having these be community-led 
in the community, not in sterile random buildings where people can access them, but in communities and in neighborhoods where people are. So what we want to do is tack on emergency preparedness, uh, go bag giveaways alongside those testing and vaccination sites and events. Nuestra Comunidad, who I mentioned earlier, are also doing a lot of neighborhood preparedness uh, trainings in neighborhoods. They're partnering with a lot of other folks in different neighborhoods. Uh, I can't give exact dates. If somebody reaches out to me, then I can actually let you know. But they're really also supposed to be really focused on community and access to uh, uh, people who might not have easy access to internet, might not know how to use it, or Spanish speakers, or aren't clued in or tied into the English speaking, what we're used to, Googling things, looking up YouTube. So a different style of training and one-on-one interactions to teach people how to be prepared. And there aren't any other larger ones. I know Santa Rosa, the city of Santa Rosa was doing a radio giveaway. They were also doing that in collaboration with different organizations. I believe they might have run out at this point. And, um, but I would encourage people to keep an eye out for any more on social media, follow your county and city Facebook pages, your fire district page. Um, I feel like I, that's where I receive most of my information and knowledge about events that are coming up. Thank you, Rocio. And uh, Melinda, what outreach is PG&E planning in the weeks ahead of fire season? We've been doing quite a few community town halls. We're just starting to return to in-person town halls. So I've, I uh, have been, I did an in-person town hall up in Lake County this week. And then we've been meeting um, with all of our local elected officials. So usually those meetings are held via Zoom or virtually, but all the members of the community are welcome to watch. Those meetings are all subject to Brown Act. They've been recorded. I do not go back and watch past recordings of myself, but they are there and available if people are interested. I know my counterpart and my colleague, Mark Van Gorder, has done multiple presentations for local jurisdictions in Marin County and Napa County, and I have done many of the municipal uh, city council meetings here in Sonoma County already, so those are available online um, if people are interested and they'd like to see the questions that their city council members are asking. And I'm I'm happy to share any links with those if you'd like. Great. Thanks, Melinda. We have time for one more question, and it's coming from Beth, uh, who asks, what do you recommend health center partners do to prepare patients? And are there some best practices uh, you can share? And uh, we'll start with Rocio for this question. So I think health providers and health staff are already overwhelmed with all the questions they have to ask and information they have to share. But I think arming your staff with that information can help with communicating and educating and talking with patients, especially if they know that they might be they might be more vulnerable or might not have access to information. So I think being able to talk to them about how to be prepared, what are you doing, or have, do you have a plan with your family and friends? or classmates or, or, or colleagues, and I think that's good to start helping people think about what, what they can do to prepare. Talking to them about Listos California, they, you can print out these resource guides, and they're really easy to use, and they're really colorful and available in multiple languages that you can have also ready. And also, uh, I know there's also a big push right now with community health workers to also have this like multifaceted knowledge about 
everything from health to disaster preparedness. So also giving that information to your case managers and your community health workers and everybody. It's not just people who have like that direct interaction, but everybody who builds up that system that you work in. I think that's what I would recommend. Um, and the, the great thing I think also about the disaster ready guides is that they are also created for people with low literacy. So um, that's also the nice thing about these guides that they're colorful and they also have uh, just, it's just really easy to follow, even if you cannot read in whatever language or just read uh, in your in your spoken language or if language is not available in, um, in a written form. Um, so that's, those are some thoughts that I have. Great. Thanks, Rocio. Melinda, do you have anything to add on? No, I think Rocio did a great job of summing it up. Just kudos to everyone who is working at the Community Health Center, who is providing information to patients around disaster preparedness and the existing resources in the community. Community health centers are just a critical component of our disaster response and building resiliency and preparedness um, in advance of an event. So thank you. Thank you, Melinda. Um, Tom, uh, any final final thoughts? And then I think we are at time. I would only be echoing what Rocio and Melinda said. Um, one more resource that you might be able to go to is the U.S. Fire Administration. It's USFA, U.S. Fire Administration. Dot FEMA dot gov. They have uh, a whole host of resources there that we utilize to push out and educate our community. So, and they can be specific to your disability if you're extremely hard of hearing, offers opportunities and tools that you might need to um, facilitate an evacuation from a building or from a wildland fire. So that's just one more resource for folks to go to. And I can put that in the chat, but thanks for having me and thanks for all the work you do. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Rocio, and thank you, Melinda. It's been a invigorating conversation, and I think all of us are a little bit more prepared or know what we need to do to be prepared as fire season arrives. So thank you so much for joining us on the QI chat room, and wishing everyone a great rest of your Friday. Thank you for joining the QI chat room podcast. We appreciate you, our listeners, for joining us today. If you have suggested future topics, please email m-p-e-r-r-e-y at rchc.net. And please follow us, the Redwood Community Health Coalition, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye for now. Till next time on the QI Chat Room.